All right, we should probably get started here, although it's a good morning just to, to chat. It's one of those days. Let's say a prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, Heavenly Father, we will sing of your strength. We will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to us a fortress and a refuge in the day of our distress. O our strength, we will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are our fortress. Lord God, Heavenly Father, show us your steadfast love. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. Before we do anything else, um, there's a nice card that was addressed to the Friday morning women's Bible study from Anna Pirro. Let me just read this to you. Uh, Ladies of the Friday morning Bible study, thank you. The cookies that you provided were a blessing to the workers. We had 11 people from five churches in the Northern Illinois District. Serving with us were 11 students from the Western from Western Michigan University, along with their campus pastor. Later in the week, four people joined us from a Lutheran church in Louisiana. I couldn't understand how the cookie supply was being more rapidly depleted than I had planned. (laughs) Then I realized two college kids were hanging out in the fellowship hall in the evening, holding devotions, playing cards, and eating cookies. (laughs) Cookie depletion mystery solved. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it is part of the discipline of humility that we must not spare our hand where it can perform a service, and we do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. Your hands provided cookies, for that alert is grateful. To God alone be the glory. Anna Pirro. Thank you very much for doing that. That's very kind of you. And that's, I mean, it's, um, you know, little things. Um, little delights like that go such a long way also um, alongside all of the other uh, efforts. It's a whole effort of caring people, caring for people and caring for those, those folks who are caring for them. It's really wonderful. So thanks for doing that. Um, do you have any questions? Yeah, Krista. Um, Pastor, we had, we had last week, um, it was only that I just thought uh, Goliath and David. Yeah. And... Uh, um, the, the gentleman who ex- explained it to us, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, yeah, um, that in the in the end, it was not really really a big deal that uh, David um, uh, uh, had the battle with uh, Goliath, Goliath at the end. And I thought, you know, because he was he couldn't see really, he could have sometimes double vision, and uh, this big man. They were really not so strong mm. as, as it, it seemed like, and uh, um, but you know I think <laughs> um, it takes a mystery. Uh, about, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, with our today's um, experience or what or what we uh, discover or so, um, you perhaps you can explain everything. That's right. That, so I was just, there was a, a biblical... Recap. I will, yes. Um, I just want to say one thing about explaining away the mystery. That's a really good observation. I was just reading a, a biblical theologian who was talking about, I mean, you, this is from beginning to end in the scriptures, right? The question is, um, well, modern science says such and such, what should we do? Um, and this, this great scholar, he said this line that was so helpful. It was something, something of the sort of, um, science. let science do its thing for the moment, you have to take scripture at face value. Take scripture for what it says first and ask yourself whether it's God's word or not. If it is, 
then that gives it this credibility. And then after you've interpreted scripture, then you can ask the question, well, does science agree with it or not? And if it doesn't agree with it, well, then who's got the problem, right? But if you come in presupposing that scripture, in order to be properly interpreted, must agree with science, you're coming in wearing a, a pair of glasses that don't fit scripture, right? That aren't meant for scripture, right? And so it's the same thing here. Um, if in order to understand the story of David and Goliath, you have to know things about giantism or um, you, you know, you have to be able to see behind the scenes of what's actually going on there. Well, then we're doing a disservice to Scripture. So let's talk a little bit about this. Marilyn, you're asking to recap. is great. So what was Malcolm Gladwell trying to do? What was his... What was his he, he said it at the beginning of his talk. He said this is what... Um, this was his experience. He thought he understood the story, and then he realized he didn't understand the story. Now, what, in what is the main way that he thought he misunderstood the story? Okay, so he was taking God out of the story altogether, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and, I, and, you know, it's interesting, though, he may or may not have ever had God in the story, right? So just take it uh, just at sort of at face value. You hear David and Goliath, what kind of a story is that? We got this March Madness, right? David and Goliath, what kind of a story is that? That's a, that's a 16 seed going up against the number one seed, right? Okay, so you've got um, an un, so somebody who cannot win, right? That's the, that's the story that we see. And, and cannot win for all kinds of good reasons, because it's weaker, smaller, not as well-trained, all of that. So what is Malcolm Gladwell trying to show that the, that the story is not really that way, right? That the, although we've interpreted it this way, if we've interpreted it this way as this, this massive imbalance that David overcomes, the, the scales weren't quite so tipped, right? Um, now, that's an interesting thing, um, Part of the reason why he's doing that is, is this fits into a larger project he had in his book, David and Goliath, which is to show that underdogs aren't always really underdogs. And so you shouldn't devalue underdogs because maybe they have hidden talents that you don't know about. And that, in fact, that, that point is, is really well put. In fact, you know, David, um, we know that he was skillful, right? Killing bears and lions, protecting his flock. And in, I don't know if Pastor Nelson mentioned this, in Judges, we heard about slingers that they could hit a hair standing on somebody's head, right? That kind of precision. Okay, so, so now does that change, how does that change the story? Well, um, it doesn't. It does. Thank you. Yeah. Um, maybe that's what I'm remembering from what he said. It's, it's, it's not what things appear to be. Right. Well, that doesn't bother me at all. In fact, God says as much as himself, right? When he anoints David, he says it's not what's on the outside, but it's what's in the heart. Now, here's the thing, though. Um, an appraisal of the story that Malcolm Gladwell gives, which you might give if you just were looking at it, trying to figure out how David could ever have won, right? Removing any supernatural intervention. You say, how could David won? Well, he had hidden talents that you couldn't see, okay? So it's not what's on the outside, but what's something hidden that you might see. But that's not, in fact, the thing that's revealed by the text. His hidden talents certainly were there, and God used them. But that's not the thing that's revealed about David in this story. It's who he puts his reliance. That's right. It's who he puts his trust in. At no point does he say, I'm going to beat you because I'm a really good slinger, right? He says, in fact, the Lord is going to fight for me. The Lord will defeat you. He's, he, David is the one throwing the stone and chopping off the head of Goliath. And yet, from beginning to end, he says, this is not me doing this, right? It doesn't matter whether I'm big or I'm small. It doesn't matter. Uh, it makes no difference whatsoever. The Lord is the one who's beating you. And, and now, here's the, here's the other side of it, too. That could, have well, that could well have been Saul, who stood a head taller than everybody else. He could have been the one leading the army and saying, 
the Lord will defeat you. And it would have been the same story, right? Up against God's enemies who presume to be able to defeat God, right? The Philistines, the story of the Philistines is like, um, it's just atrocious. Because from beginning to end, they're just like nasty people who are trying to uh, force their way on the, the people of Israel and always trying to give their God a leg up, right? Trying to say, to show the supremacy of their God. And so this is one of the reasons why the story is such an interesting thing. We learn so much about God in this story too because he suffers even that ill repute of having, losing to the Philistines every now and again, right? Of losing to Dagon or apparently losing to Dagon every now and again. Jan. Well, I think the other thing we have to remember is the reason that they ended up with this is because way back when they crossed the River Jordan, they didn't carry out God's command, and that was utterly wipe out yeah. everybody that lived in, his, in what we see as the country of Israel. That's right. That's right. They just got tired of fighting and quit. Yeah. Yeah. They have all these reasons for it, too. Like, they have chariots of iron. So I can't, we can't beat chariots. And, if not, and, and so here's the thing. Chariots of iron, that's like the greatest technological military advancement of the time. So yeah, if you've got chariots, that's pretty devastating. But God's fighting for you. Like this should have been their mantra all along, right? The Lord is fighting for us. And then it's not just, well, they're afraid, but they just don't want to, you know? It's inconvenient for us to have to go and... This becomes really relevant later in the New Testament. Um, you remember there are several times that Canaanites appear in the New Testament. Do you think of any examples of that? What, the Canaanite woman. How does that story go? Oh, the, the Samaritan woman, right? Yeah, but now, but that's true too because the Samaritans are uh, a mixed race, right? Yeah. She touched the robe. Uh, there's, there is a woman who touches the robe of Jesus. Now, she's not, she's not the Canaanite woman. Nope. No, she's the one, the crumbs. The crumbs. Yeah, tell the story. Would you, do you mind telling the story? Uh, she came, uh, she was a Canaanite woman who uh, came to the Lord because her daughter was ill. Demon possessed, yep. Demon possessed. Yeah. And um, he said, well, you, I can't give to you because it's for the people of Israel. Right. And but he said, the, 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 the dogs eat the crumbs. Even the dogs eat the crumbs. Right. So he starts by saying, you're just a dog. My food is for the children. You're just a dog. And she says to him, just give me what a dog gets and I'll be fine. Right. So so in the background of the story, of course, is that she's one of those people who ought to have been eradicated. Right. She shouldn't be here at all by any stretch of the imagination. Um, And she knows that, too. In fact, I mean, that's in that's in the background of the story. Um, now, what's remarkable then about, there's so many remarkable things about that story, but one of them is that God's, his patience endures, right? And he saves her because she's faithful. Finally, it's because she trusts in him. She knows that all she needs is a little bit. She knows that her very existence is contingent, dependent on God's mercy. And that's what God wants of us. That's faith, right? Um, good. So uh, that's all in the background um, and the, this, is, this is why the Philistines are like this perennial enemy for the people of Israel. And um, they come, David fights them again and again in his tenure as, as king. Um, any other questions? Yeah, Jody. When Malcolm, that, that guy, is talking, why is he taking that out of the picture if he's writing a book about, how, about God? Yeah, uh, well, it's not about God. It's, a, it's kind of like a social 
psychology, sociology kind of a thing. Um, he's, not a, he's not like a, he's a great writer, great storyteller. And he, he'll describe himself not as a social scientist, but as a storyteller. He gets a lot of flack for that because he's not very rigorous in his research, right? Um, uh, but, uh, so he considers himself a storyteller. Now, if you're going to tell stories that are going to influence popular thinking, God's got to be nowhere in that, right? Yeah. Just, to, just He's like, let's just read, let's look at this through another angle. That's kind of how he approaches things, yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's something to learn from that. The helpful thing to learn is... Um, there's always another, like, we should, we should keep reading the stories because you'll have missed things, to be sure. The other side of it, though, is don't speculate. Speculation doesn't help anybody, right? I mean, his speculation about giantism, you know, whatever. I don't know. It doesn't matter, really. <laughs> um, it's just kind of making it up because maybe it explains what's going on. Um, maybe it doesn't explain it so well either because, like, you know, his, this business about you come at me with two sticks, right? Why do you come at me with sticks as at a dog, right? And so Malcolm Gladwell says, well, that must, means, must mean he thought David had two sticks. Well, if he thought David had two sticks, why doesn't he think there are two Davids, right? He's seen double. Okay, so it just, I mean, he's looking for a good story. Okay. Other questions? I think it's maybe it's a good thing we do know about this. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it didn't bother me. Uh, he thought David was the emperor. He really wasn't because God him. That's right. But that particular Yeah. Yeah, and it shouldn't ever surprise us that. Um, it might be true, but the, the giant might be true. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, because um, the the most the most important true thing is that David was never an underdog because he trusted in God, right? Kathy. Uh, I think that even if it was giantism and he had poor eyesight and all that stuff, it, the the point I think to me was that. He was out there back and forth a little bit, and he's trash talking and being very belligerent sounding, and he had the entire army scared. Yeah, right. And they may never have sent someone to fight him. Yeah. And would have lost the battle. And, and to me, it's, it's he was maybe not as big and powerful and horrible as they all thought. And I just think how many how many obstacles in life seem that way. Yeah. That's that's great. Is a faithful response. Yeah. Trusting in God to deal with it. That would uh, reduce it to like monks Yeah. You should you should you should try to collect those people in your life. I, just, I mean, seriously, surround yourself with people who will, when you find yourself to be overwhelmed with whatever's going on, will just say, wait a minute, this is not, this is not what you think it is. I mean, those moments, I'd like, this is, <laughs> it's like repentance. Um, the moment somebody says to you, this is not as big a deal as you think it is, and you realize it, that's really embarrassing, because you're like, why, what was I, you know, so overwhelmed about? But then on the other hand, it's all of a sudden, it's just like, it just clears, it clears it away, right? And uh, so you should... Stick close to those people who are willing to say that to you. Yeah. Find Davids, right? Good. Yeah. Anything else? I'm glad it prompted such thoughtfulness. That's good. Um, that, was, that was kind of the, the hope. Um, because it is such a familiar story, too, right? This is kind of the trap we fall into with familiar Sunday school stories is we, get, we tell them to ourselves and we think we know them well. But it's good to look at them with fresh eyes. Okay. 
you think how devastating that would be if you're telling that story to a child and, and you're saying, but of course that's because uh, you, they just don't tell you that. That's right. <laughs> it would be, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so and which is leave the little ones to not believe. It's right. Yeah. Says be careful to do on that. Which is why when you tell the story, the thing that you got to bring out is David's words. It's just like they are. I mean, it's unbelievable what he says. It's unbelievable, um, and it's so good. Uh, yeah, that's great. That's yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Jody. Being science minded, I do appreciate his. Um, his thoughtfulness about those things because I wondered that. Not that it takes over the space, but no. it's an interesting thing. Yeah, how do you get to be nine feet tall, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, I've, I've thought about those things. I've seen people like that, and I, but I don't, it, it didn't take over the story for me. It just, yeah. it, kind of an interesting <laughs> Right, right. And again, you know, it shouldn't surprise us that um, it's like normal things or, or abnormal, you know, Variants, right, or um, explicable variants in uh, in human life. Really, you know, things that actually happen. God uses them. This is this is. I mean, this is what He does. He, he uses material stuff like us um, to carry out His purposes. Yeah, which is why, you know, again, right? It's not surprising that He would use a skillful slinger to defeat the giant. Good. Okay, we're gonna move on a little bit here um, to chapter 18. Start with chapter 18. I'm hoping. We'll see about chapter 18 and chapter 19. Actually, there's a lot of stuff in 19 that I want to get to. Um, so we might breeze through a little bit here. One of the things to pay attention to is um, two things. What kind, of, what kind of Old Testament, so pre, well, biblical, what kind of biblical resonances are there? When you hear these, when you hear these words, when you hear this story, what kind of bells ring from other stories you know in the Bible? Okay? That's always a really fruitful exercise to, to then compare and contrast and see what's, what's different um, and how is it the same. How is it a recapitulation? That's one thing. The next thing is, we, at this point in the story now, we've got David, and we, are, we have to um, examine his character. All right? His character, his faithfulness, is what's on display for us right now. So think about that. What kind of a person is David? What is he up against? Um, how does he handle it? All right? Let's start with chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul that he is David, and he's, he's answered, whose father, are you, is you, whose, whose father is yours, right? I'm the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Okay, so we'll just pause there. Um, tell, what, tell me about... David and Jonathan's friendship. What is what's striking about that? Yeah, close knit like brothers. Yeah, knit in their souls. Right. It's not just like they have they enjoy hunting and fishing together, but they are knit together in their inmost being. Right. Tell me more. 
How does we noted last week about how Jonathan's victory was similar to David's. He always he gave all the credit to God. Yeah, right, right. So they are like-minded, right? They both trust in God. Good. And that, that, is a, that is a good explanation for why they become such close friends, right? What else? It's interesting how it says that Jonathan stripped himself. I don't know what that word is. But this idea that he's essentially giving his mantle yeah. to David. What does that mean? He's giving up the king. Yeah, right. So, you know, as much as David is an exemplar, Jonathan, I think, is... Um, Similarly, an exemplar because he gives what he gives up what belongs to him by right, the kingdom, right, and he gives it in this symbolic way. So he hands he hands everything to David because he loves him and because he knows he's the Lord's anointed and because he knows that he's skillful to be the king. Um, and and he just it's like John the Baptist, right? I must decrease that he might increase. That is amazing. That is, I mean, think so. Think about the kind of character that's required to do that. That is very, very difficult to do. And um, this is where, you know, this is the test of their friendship, right? There's no, so St. Paul talks about in 1 Timothy, he talks about um, uh, the potential, the possibility of dissensions and rivalries in the church. And, and you, I mean, you can imagine how that happens. You've probably seen it yourself, how dissensions and rivalries and contempt and um, grasping after things destroys the church. That's not the way the church is supposed to be. It destroys friendships, too. Right? And here we have this example of how there's no rivalry. Right? They both have, by rights, the same claim to the same thing, and Jonathan just recedes right? because he knows he, he loves the Lord. Krista? <clears throat> I was thinking of the disciples. Yeah. Yeah, right. Who argue amongst themselves who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's right. They should have read their Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, Aaron. Well, looking at the first, the first verse, how he says, as soon as he had finished speaking, as soon as David had finished speaking, he saw the soul of Jonathan in his name. And it's sort of like, what, why? They're mentioning the timing. Yeah. It's like, well, why is that timing significant to Jonathan? But if you look right before, um, you know, Saul is like, who is this guy who's just killed Goliath? And the inquiry is, they don't know. And then. <laughs> And then it says, David returned from striking down the Philistine after took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Yeah. And Saul says, who, basically, whose son are you? And it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty humble answer. Yeah. I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. And he's standing there with the head of a giant in his hand. Yeah. I mean, what, what would you have done if you had that? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Crazy little warrior. Yeah. And a humble heart. Yeah. So it is interesting that you probably identify it like some really And that, that's, a, that's such a great thing to say um, because it tells you also how you should look at people too, right? So um, we value all kinds of wrong things in people. Like um, we, um, we look at what's on the outside and not what's on the inside. But when you see that, when you see what's on the inside, you should, you should uh, long for that. You should cling to that. Um, that's exactly right. It's like you had me. You had me at the Lord will fight for me, right? Um, and that, and he didn't. He did, I was just picturing the picture is great. You described it so well. If I had the head of the Philistine in my hand, I would have like trotted in and slammed it on the floor and was like, "What now?" You know? <laughs> um, yeah, but none of that. That's right. 
it's that's so, it's such a great story, and um, yeah, this is this is why um, we should read this stuff all the time because having these examples before our eyes is so edifying. Yeah, Krista. Um, David. Saul had to know David, no? Yeah. There's some confusion. Like, it's, it's unclear just what's going on there. Now, notice he doesn't say, who are you? He doesn't say, like, he doesn't know David's name. He says, whose son are you? And remember what he promised to the person who defeated Goliath? Yeah, so he wants to know, like, whose family, whose family is he enriching? And whose family is he wedding himself to now, right? Well, and I'm thinking about friendship and, and how we do friendship. So many times you see, you know, if you look at celebrities, who are they hanging out with? Not like, they're hanging out with other celebrities and other big times. Like, if you're a movie star, you hang out with the top athletes in the world. Yeah, right. But, but it's like, this is a really misalignment. Yes, that's absolutely right. And a shepherd. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like what you just said about looking at the inside. But, but thinking about how we do friendship in our culture is like you're sort of always trying to find the person that's ranked the highest that yeah. you're friends with. You're like, well, can I reach a little higher and be friends with someone who <laughs> Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so not only do you fail to properly assess people, you put, you put yourself in company with people who aren't good for you, but you also miss out on some of the riches that God's got for you in people who are humble, you know, who aren't exalting themselves. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we, let's keep going here. Okay, verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So Saul knows more than he's, than he, he's saying more than he knows even, right? The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. It's almost kind of nonchalant. He just tried to kill David, right? Um, I love this. I give you these two paintings or these two prints here. The one on top, this is a, um, a bass relief. So this is three-dimensional. It's great. You can see the chair, Saul's chair, tipping over behind him as he tosses the spear at David. Um, you, it, you know, imagine what kind, of, how, what kind of feelings that must require in order to throw a spear across the room at, at somebody who you've loved, who's caring for you, who's saved your people, right? What kind of terrible um, feelings you must have in order to do that. And, um, you know, that's, that's what we see in Saul. Remember the contrast. So here he is ready to kill David for having done what was righteous and holy. Do you remember the, remember the contrasting story when Saul is anointed king and he goes out and defeats the Philistines? Um, there had been some men who had said, should this guy really be king over us? And his followers, Saul's followers, said, let's put him to death. And what did Saul say? No, we're not going to put them to death, right? So it's like, I mean, it's a complete reversal. Um, and it's, notice what it is. It's this harmful spirit tormenting him, in fact. Um, he is turning more and more in on himself. 
Okay? Tracking? Let's keep going. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So the, so the very reason why Jonathan loves him and why the people of Israel love him, that's the reason why Saul hates him. Yeah. Um, okay. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him. Too late, he already threw the spear. But let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. So there's a couple things going on here. Just pay attention to this, right? So Saul is scheming now, right? He's trying to figure out how he can do this. Now, there's a bit of foreshadowing here because David himself does this later, right? Schemes to have Uriah murdered, not by his own hand, but at the hands of the enemies of God's people. Um, And then there's this deception. Now, there's a bit... See if you you can spot this parallel. Um, So think about the story of Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban, right? How there's all this deception going on between the two of them, how he gives, says, I'm going to give you one daughter, and then he gives another. This will become even more apparent later when we find out that Michal um, has household gods, like Rachel had. So watch out for that. There's a little bit of a parallel here, um, this tension between um, God's chosen one and his father-in-law. Okay. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she might be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Sorry, I just have to keep pausing. Um, okay, so, so what kind of a role is Saul playing here now? Think about, think about who lays snares and who uses the wife, a wife to lay a snare for a husband. Who does that? Satan. You see, you see in this picture how Saul's got this scaly armor on right here? Have you, have you, so did Pastor Nelson mention how, you know, Goliath is like this, he, wear, he wears scaly armor and then he gets his head lopped off and David is defeating him now. So here you have this temptation. Saul has de- descended to this depth where he's actually playing the role of the serpent, the, very, the same serpent that was in the garden trying to ensnare Adam by the, by the lie of his wife Eve. And um, he's trying to entrap him. But David resists. He's not, he doesn't succumb to it. Now, part of the, part of the snare is this, that, um, as we'll find out later, Michal is not faithful to God, right? She's not faithful to the Lord, and so she is a snare to David. Okay, keep going here. Um, Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become this king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? 
it's not false humility, right? That is genuine humility. Even though they're saying he's slain his ten thousands, he knows who he is, right? He knows where he comes from. And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now, thought, now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins. Yes, what a gift. <laughs> Try not to picture it. Which were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So he, doub- you know, he dou- doubles the bride price. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Isn't that interesting? I mean, his, so his bitterness is just multiplying here, but in every attempt that he has to try and undermine David, it just actually works to David's advantage, right? Um, you can't, you can't uh, he's kicking against the goads, as uh, Jesus will say to, to Saul, right? Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Okay, any questions? We're not going to get done what I wanted to get done with, uh, chapter 19. But we'll get, we can get started here, just a little bit. Um, okay, uh, yeah, we'll just keep going. Okay, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. So now, his, now it's in the open, right? It's no longer in secret. He's talking out loud to his servants, saying, kill that guy, please. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. So David is in a difficult position for a dozen years because he's been anointed king, but the kingdom is not his yet. Jonathan is in a similarly difficult position because he knows who the Lord's anointed is, and he has allegiance to not just to the king, but to his father, right? And so he speaks gently to him. This, is, uh, this rings in, in the background the words that um, Paul writes to First Timothy. Again, in, in his letter to Timothy, he says, he gives these instructions for for being a pastor. He says, rebuke an older man as you would a father, an older woman as you would a mother, a younger man as a a brother and a younger woman as a sister. In love, basically, love, as you love your family, should, uh, you know, stand behind every word you say, both good words and bad words. And that is what's going on here. He has to speak gently. And so how does he do it? Well, the, the single best way he can, by speaking well of David to Saul, right? How can Saul deny that? How can, he, how can he argue with that? Jonathan spoke well of David to, his, to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? That takes some nerve for Jonathan to say that to his father, right? We know what he's capable of, okay? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. 
And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So, I mean, short-lived, right? Short-lived peace. And you you have to note that this harmful spirit is from the Lord. Why would the Lord do that? Why? Okay. He needed, he needed something to change. Yeah, right? Okay. This is one way to get that done, to be sure. Can you think of other reasons, too? Why would God send this harm, harmful spirit to Saul to provoke him to throw a spear at David? Saul disobeyed. Yeah. Back several chapters ago. Continually. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So by sending this harmful spirit to Saul, it's, a bit, it's, it's parallel to what he does to Pharaoh, right? Time after time, ten times, he sends Aaron and Moses to Pharaoh and says, Let's, you know, let my people go. And he says, okay, I'll, be, I'll do it. And then he relents. And in doing that, he is just heaping up for himself more and more judgment. Um, this is uh, how Paul talks in Romans. He talks about, we talked about this last time, uh, two weeks ago, how Paul talks in Romans about... Um, you know, God's patience, God's mercy is for repentance. And when you don't repent, you're heaping up judgment for yourself. And um, that is in part so that God will be justified, right? This is Psalm 51, that God is justified in his word. So he says the, the, righteous, the righteous will prevail and the wicked will perish. Well, we're going to know who the wicked are, right? God's going to make it clear who the wicked are, okay? Keep going. Um, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and, fled aw- and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, classic ruse, and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. <laughs> and when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed. So we're talking about an, an, a household god here, with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul. He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So there is so much dysfunction in this family right now. This is um, just out of control. That's right. Um, you get, so we read this morning um, Psalm 59. You start to see in the Psalter, at this point in David's life, you start to see in the Psalter psalms that he wrote at various, on certain occasions. So Psalm 59 has this heading. Uh, a miktam of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Take a look at, we won't look at it right now, but take a look at it sometime and you'll see this, it's interesting because we don't hear David talking right now. We don't hear him expressing his feelings about the thing, but we hear it in the psalm. And he's asking for God to vindicate him against his enemies, right? So he says, this is my problem. I've got people after me, right? And, because, and he says, I've done nothing wrong. I've been righteous. I've, been, I've followed your ways. I've got people after me. Vindicate me, O God. And um, he then says, expresses his trust that God will, that God will bring the wicked 
to shame, that he'll, he'll put them to nothing. And what's so important about that is um, he is sta- stepping back. He's looking at the situation where he's persecuted unjustly and his life is at stake and he could act about it, right? He could do something about it. But he steps back and says, it's not mine to do, it's God's to do. And then he expresses this trust that God is going to, God will, God will have his justice, right? Saul will be punished. Um, it's not his timing. It's not David's timing, though, right? It's God's timing. If David takes it into his hand to do that, to bring an end to Saul right now, um, he is no better than Saul, right? He is, he is as perverse as Saul. Um, that is what's uh, amazing about David and what is so, it's so impossible to imagine, that kind of faithfulness. That when, you, when you've got the problem in front of you and you see the solution to the problem and you don't do it because you know that that solution is not yours to execute, yours to carry out. That, I mean, this is what David has to deal with. He lives in this tension his whole life long, um, or in, as long as Saul is still alive. Um, it's pretty incredible. Um, this, this is how uh, Peter Lightheart, who's a commentator on this chapter, he puts it this way. David loved his enemy because he knew that the Lord would eventually intervene and vindicate him. He knew that the Lord would judge rightly so long as he was patient. So think about what's encapsulated in there. He knows that the Lord will judge rightly. He knows that he cannot judge rightly. Even though it seems plain as day to him, right? I'm innocent. He's wicked. seems plain as day. He knows that he's a fallible human being and he cannot judge rightly. It's up to the Lord to judge. And what's asked of him is just that he be patient, right? That he wait for the Lord's salvation, not to bring salvation at his own hand. This is the same. I mean, this, is, this, this goes all the way back to the garden. Why couldn't Adam and Eve, why did they eat the fruit? It's because they, they wanted to take it in their own hands to have the gifts that God was going to give to them. They wanted to um, leap ahead into what was not yet theirs, right? Eating from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and David, I mean, David is God's anointed here. He's, he, it's, he's typifying Christ for us. Um, showing us what, what Jesus is going to look like. Okay? You tracking? Questions? Okay, we're good. Let's, we gotta, just, you, you good going to the end of the chapter? Okay, all right. We lost a couple people, but I don't know, you know. <laughs> now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah. The last time we saw Samuel was when he anointed David. Came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great wall that is in Siku, And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naioth in Ramah. And he went there to Naioth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. As he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off all his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This is a great story um, for so many reasons. For one, because it's this comment at the end is not Saul among the prophets. Do you remember when we heard that before? When Saul was anointed, Samuel said to him, this is going to be the sign. You're going to go up, and along the way, you're going to come among some prophets, and 
do whatever is at your hand. And he prophesied. And they said of him then, is not Saul also among the prophets? Then it was to his credit. Now it is to his great shame. Here he is coming to kill David. And now he's just lying about naked all day, you know, out of his mind, prophesying, right? Has no, has no wits about him. This uh, recurrent, so, so the story of sending messengers three times and then sending himself, going himself, that is, a, that is a, a thematic, that's a motif in the Bible, okay? Um, it, think about other times that kind of stuff happens. It sure does, right? Not quite the same. Not quite the same. So hold on to that thought because we need to figure out how it's different. Nancy. The appearance of Elijah where Ahab sent um, soldiers to see him and struck death. Yeah. That's right. Elijah's sitting up on a hill. First Kings chapter, Second Kings chapter one. Elijah's sitting up on a hill, and the the soldiers are sent a troop of fifty, and he says, they said, oh, they say something like, oh man of God, yeah, 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 and he says, if I am a man of God, let lightning come down from heaven and strike you dead, and it happens. More messengers, more soldiers. Happens the second time, the third time, the captain knows what's happened, and he says, be merciful. Right. So that's that's so interesting because he learns he learns from the mistakes of the previous two, right? He learns from them. Saul, nope, this is going to happen again, guy. This, is, this has happened three times before. It's going to happen again. What's insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, okay? So we've got that. There's, another, there's a couple other stories that I'm, I'm thinking of. Can you think of any other stories where somebody's expect, doing the same thing again and again, expecting different results? There's this great story. You know this one, Balaam. You know Balaam and his ass, right? Okay, so what's happening there? He's, he's going, he's called by Barak, the king, um, God's enemies. Is it the Moabites or the Edomites? Um, to curse them, right? Um, he's supposed to go and curse them. And he gets up and he delivers this oracle. And instead of cursing them, he blesses them. And the guy, the guy's like, come on, I, you know, <laughs> I told you to curse them. Try again. And, he, and, and Balaam says, I, I have to say what God says. I can't change the message. And so he gets up and he, second oracle, blesses them again. And the king, you know, you would think he would learn his lesson, but he does it again. And Balaam blesses God's people again. Um, it, this, this refrain, which is that basically you push up against God, you try again and again and again, it's not going to work out towards whatever you're aiming at. It's going to work out toward what God is aiming at. In this case with Saul and David, it's the protection of, of David. Saul's not going to be able to defeat David. He's not going to be able to do it. And he's going to be made a fool in the process. But now swing ahead to the New Testament. We've got this story. What's the, how does that story go, that parable, Carol? Well, the king has his vineyard. He has a vineyard. He goes away and he, he sends his servants to, I mean, he has people take care of The tenants, yep. And then he goes to get his due from their work. Yeah. And the tenants kill him, or they kill all three of them. They don't kill all three of them, I don't think. They abuse them. It's worse. Yeah. They beat them. And the next one, maybe they, rather than just one black eye, they get worse. And they, That's right. Um, and then finally, I'm going to send my sons. Yeah. They won't. They'll always bet the same. Maybe they'll listen to him, right? Now, do you think that God is insane? <laughs> Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, right? If they beat up the servants, they've, I mean, they're utterly shameless, right? Are they going to uh, treat the son well? Um, this is such an interesting thing to consider because um, 
Maybe they won't, but do they? No, it is the same result. It's made even worse for them, right? Um, so how does that work? It's fascinating because um, in the hands of people, humans, belligerence, again, you know, pushing back against God only serves God's purposes and it never serves our own purposes. Um, and it makes us insane, basically. Um, but in God's hands, it's not, I mean, it is insane because we are never going to turn to him. You know, we're never going to, uh, on our own, left to our own devices, we're always going to kill the messengers that he sends to us. This is what Jesus laments against Jerusalem, right? Woe to you who kill the prophets and the ones that are sent to you, right? They do it over and over and over again. That, so what's the, I mean, what's the lesson there? It's something about God's intense patience, right? His patience is unreasonable. It's insane, okay? He is out of his mind. Why? Yeah. He's out of his mind with love for you. So that he's willing to do this thing over and over again that anybody in their right mind would say, that's not going to work. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Stop, you know, you could try it twice. Quit the third time, okay? Don't do it again, right? And yet he does it again and again and again. We're going to see this. Um, there's, more to, there's more to think about there, but you're going to see it this weekend in the, another parable that Jesus tells about a fig tree that's planted and the owner of the vineyard in which the fig tree is planted comes looking for the fruit. For three years I've waited for fruit, he says. Three years is longer than he's supposed to have waited. And he says, let's chop it down. It's, still, it's done, okay? And then his vine dresser says, give me one more year. I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to lay down some manure. We're going to give it one more year. And then if at the end it still hasn't borne fruit, then cut it down. Okay? There's two things to gather from that. The one is God's intense patience, right? More than you can imagine. And here it is laid out in the story of the Bible for all to see, right? It's unbelievable. The other side of it, though, is uh, the risk of presumption, right? This is, so here's, this is what I'm preaching on, right? So this is what the devil does with God's patience. He says, there's never going to be an end to God's patience. There's never going to be a day when he actually chops down the tree. So don't worry about it, right? Um, and that takes God's patience and his mercy, and it, he, he weaponizes it against us, right? Turns it against us to our, our ill. Um, the, but, you know, the, the point is to keep your eyes fixed on um, just really, the insanity of God's love, right? If you need any demonstration of how much God loves you, it's that he's willing to let himself be like Saul, this wicked man, in that he goes again and again and again to do this thing that you know, seems apparently um, never to work and to be made a complete fool for your sake. That's, that's I mean, in the background of uh, the New Testament, in the background of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, is all these times that God's people have tried um, to have their way and, they won't, and it, won't ha- it won't work. And here, God is trying again and again and again to have his way with you. And it's only by his Holy Spirit that you ever turn to him and believe. Krista. I only want to uh, say uh, God is waiting for 2,000 years. Longer. To get these Jews. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, we talked about this, about how strange it is that God should experience regret and equally strange that he should have to wait. Well, why does he wait? It's a bit like this. It's a bit like, um, this might, I don't know, I haven't tested this image very well, but it's a bit like, so you have God's justice and, and God's mercy, right? His, his nature de- demands justice, right? Sin requires a 
punishment, right? a penalty be, to be paid. But, he, but he, on the other side, it's sort of polar to that is his love for his creation, his mercy. And when sin enters the world, so prior to sin, there's no, contract, there's no contradiction between justice and mercy. They, they, you know, it's just all perfect. Sin enters the world, and it's a bit like these things get spread apart, right? And now there's this tension. And um, it's, you, know, you can imagine like um, a merry-go-round, right, with a centrifugal force, right? So you've got these things pulling against each other. They're coming back together. There's going to be a time when God's got his perfection again, when justice and mercy um, are together a whole. And he keeps them apart for as long as possible. Why? So that you can come to him, so that you can turn to him and live, right? Um, and this is in time. This is history. This is the story of the world, is these things spinning around, right? And God um, exercising great patience and t- at times having to bring his justice into the world, right? The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, when his people build a, um, a golden calf and he has to, he says to the Levites, grab your sword and kill your neighbor, right? Sometimes he, he breaks out, but all along the way he's keeping this thing in tension for your sake. Um, how unnatural that is, right, for these two things to be at, at poles with each other. So here's the thing. I don't know whether that holds entirely theologically, so don't go around telling people, like, this is how it works. But just I think that, that, I think that there is something, something there, um, at least to give you a sense of how um, unnatural it is for God to have to wait to save you and how that is a demonstration of his love. Okay? Questions? We've gone way over now because I won't shut up. But Okay. Let's, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you.